0: Fiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant.
1: And I'm B.V. Ganesanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. 2019 marks the 40th anniversary of the Iranian Revolution, so we're spending this episode talking about that. The culmination of two years of protests, strikes, and demonstrations led to Iran's monarchical government, the Western-backed Pahlavi dynasty, to be overthrown
0: in favor of a theocratic democracy. The U.S. and Iran's relationship has gone steadily downhill since President Trump pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, which had been negotiated by the Obama administration. But the tumultuous relationship between the two countries goes back to well before the 1979 revolution. Our guest today will shed some light on the complicated background
1: between the two countries, which brings us to our first guest, Jasmine Darznik. Jasmine is the author of the 2011 New York Times bestseller The Good Daughter, a memoir of my mother's hidden life, and the 2018 novel Song of a Captive Bird, a fictional account of the trailblazing Iranian new wave woman poet Farukh Faroksad. Song of a Captive Bird was selected as a New York Times book review editor's choice and appeared on several best of lists in 2018, including Booklist, Reader's Digest, and Newsweek. She teaches in the MFA program at California College of the Arts. Jasmine, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, thanks so much. Great to be here.
0: As we mentioned in the introduction, today's topic is the Iranian Revolution, which happened 40 years ago in 1979. For our listeners who may not be familiar with the revolution or may not have been alive then, judging from our audience metrics, uh, can you give us the (laughs) basics?
2: Sure. Well, I guess the riddle of history is where you start the story. And I'd say it's not really possible to understand the revolution without knowing that there was a long history of Western imperialism. British and then American in Iran, which was driven really by an interest in Iranian oil. And the other thing is that there was a 1953 American-led coup that ousted Iran's prime minister. He had taken the really daring act of nationalizing the country's oil. And so with that coup, Iran's oil and a lot of Iranians would say its destiny fell back into the hands of Western powers. But to bring us up to the present, uh, under the Shah, there was a massive movement to modernize the country, but there was also galling economic inequality, and that was exacerbated by cultural and religious So wait, just to some,
0: summarize, like, yeah. there was a nationalizing sort of socialist movement that the U.S. then destroyed and put in somebody who was pro-capitalist, and then some inequ- income inequality occurred. <laughs> Which sounds very familiar to me. It's a familiar
1: story. Yeah, Yeah, it's a familiar story. Just checking.
2: No, but kind of shockingly a lot, even though this is not contentious, all the documents were released years ago, but still a lot of Americans don't know this history. And the point of reference is always the revolution. And I think for Iranians, it feels like, wait, hang on a second, you can't. You, don't, you can't get the revolution without understanding at least part of what happened before it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, you know, bringing it up a little bit more toward 1979, the Shah was taken out. He was ousted, and in the place of the monarchy came this fundamentalist regime that we all know of now.
1: And it gets even more complicated from there. The Iran hostage crisis, for example, which I think was probably my first consciousness of Iran when college students took over the U.S. embassy in Tehran and held 52 American diplomats hostage for 444 days from the end of 79 to the beginning of 81. And then I think that was a moment when a lot of Americans maybe... You know, turned their eyes towards those headlines, that kind of suspense dominating the news, that hostage crisis, coupled with the fact that the Shah was backed by the United States and a widely circulated rumor that Reagan had a secret deal to delay the return of the hostages until after the election. His election against Jimmy Carter when he was trying to beat Carter, right? Right. And all of this is just a huge amount to keep track of. So for people who weren't around when it happened, you know, I think I was born in the middle of the hostage crisis. This may be the first time they're hearing all of this. And I was thinking some of our listeners might even be most familiar with the hostage crisis from the movie Argo, that Ben Affleck movie. But what did the world learn from the revolution that we need to remember in order to avoid this sort of thing from happening?
2: So, you know, I have to hesitate over the word learn because I don't think the world really learned um, no, what's Betty. Betty. Think- much of anything, right? And I think that has a lot to do with who's gotten to tell the story and how the story has been told. Um, I can say, though, that it was through the hostage crisis that America, in particular, first encountered Islamic radicalism. And then the terror and the trauma that Americans experienced around the hostage crisis engendered um, a lot of animosity that has been enlisted to demonize Iranian people, and then more broadly, to justify military actions in the region, far beyond Iran. So if there's a lesson I think should be learned that has it. It's the necessity of looking really critically at what we've been told by our governments and also at what the media is telling us.
0: So I, I just wanted to go through a, the hostage crisis started after the revolution had occurred and the Shah was already deposed, right? Right. It wasn't they were part already of, Yeah, it already happened. What was the triggering event for that?
2: Well, the revolution really started as a populist uprising. Right. I want to talk exactly. about
0: that too, Lav. Could you please right. talk about that?
2: Yeah. So there, there were many factions who were agitating against the Shah's regime. Um, there were communists agitating against it, people who were in favor of Western-style democracies, people of all sorts of stripes. But it's the Islamic faction that really quickly sort of came, went to the fore and usurped the power and the leadership of that movement. It's- yeah,
3: I'm sorry, I'm sorry go, go ahead. ahead.
0: I was just thinking it feels a little bit like the Bolshevik revolution in Russia, which had a lot of idealistic elements, was trying to get rid of an oppressive, oppressive sort of capitalist regime, but then got take hijacked by the most extreme parts of the revolution.
2: I think that was very much the case. I know just anecdotally, people in the Bay Area where I grew up had come to Berkeley to study, and they were very much, you know, sort of you know, enlivened by Marxist ideology or you know communist principles, and they went back to Iran. They were living in America and went back to Iran because they wanted to participate in the revolution. And they really saw this as the beginning, potentially, of a of a um, you know very very different sort of country that would be would have been enlivened by those kind of attitudes and and worldviews.
0: What? The, so then, after that, I mean, okay. So we talked about how the revolution got started, but. What was it that caused the hostage crisis? Was there a triggering event there? Like, why did the embassy get, uh, I like, I actually don't know the question. It's like a thing that I've known in my history. I lived through it just mm-hmm. like so even. I don't know what caused it.
2: You know, I, I have to say, I don't know to the extent I think you, you'd like me to answer, because I'm not an expert on this area in a historical sense. I only know, sort of through my family, what those times were like, and of course what I've read since. But I think that the, the hostage crisis was, in a sense, it was a media opportunity for this group of radicalized um, Islamic uh, young men, really, and who were, had grown up with a sense of their country having been taken hostage by America. And it was a stunt, I think in some ways, They didn't know what they were doing at first. They didn't. I don't think my understanding is that they didn't envision this as taking 444 days. There was never this sort of plan. Um, But uh, they seized this moment, and it quickly became a real lightning rod. It really galvanized people either to to their cause, or it really caused a lot of um, international um, sort of. in a way, a sort of, you know, a, a sensation around their cause. And it took on a life of its own.
1: So a little bit of an announcement, like a new, a, there's a new leader in town, a new set of leaders in town. And this is what we look like. And this is what we stand for.
2: This is what we stand for. And again, giving that history that I just touched on very briefly, a feeling like we're in charge now of our country. You for so long have held our, our lives in your hands. And I mean, I'm very much sort of imagining this. And I don't think it was something that the greater majority of Iranians condoned or believed in. But I think those are the sentiments that they were manipulating when they took the hostages.
1: And, you know, as you sort of touched on earlier, 40 years ago, there's no internet or social media. So American media and politicians had, you know, an overly large hand in shaping the narrative of the revolution, the the hostage crisis, what did American media coverage of the revolution get wrong or, or right? You know, what is it about that history that you maybe would like people to be questioning more thoughtfully? And what was Iranian media coverage like?
2: Sure. Well, I was so young when we left Iran. We were, we left right on the eve of the revolution, so I don't have any, any memory at all of what Iranian coverage was like. But knowing Iranians, as I do, I'd say there would have been a great deal of skepticism about whatever was being told through the media. There's just a really deep, long-running um, skepticism Iranians have toward their government, toward any government, really. So whatever was being told is, I don't think it was a story that people took much credence in. In terms of what was happening, the story that was being told over in America, I do remember that quite vividly. I think Sue and I might be the, about the same age, but I was a young child during the hostage crisis, and I remember coming home from school. And this is a story every Iranian-American will tell you. They remember coming home, and the news would be on. It wasn't just in our house. It seemed like everybody was— tuned into the news every night. And that number of days was broadcast in this countdown, day by day, the countdown, which built ultimately to 444 days. And I think it was this tremendous, maybe in, in modern times, it, it was a an enormous media spectacle. And that spectacle became the lens through which Americans saw us, us Iranian Americans, um, even though many of us had come to flee the revolution, we were identified with this really what seemed like a, a very barbaric and horrific regime. I don't think we've managed to get out from under that lens as the Iranian Americans. I think actually the lens has only, you know, sort of deepened its gaze on us in the years since nine eleven. And it has created this Sense that feels very pressing right now that Muslims, as Muslims were unassimilable aliens. I think you can trace that, the genesis of that feeling, back to the media coverage of the hostage crisis in 1980.
0: The other thing they got wrong is that it was all total crap that, that you know, in other words, like all the I remember it too. I was born in '67, and uh, all of the stuff that we just discussed about the Shah, about American involvement in, in Iran's past. I don't remember any of that being talked about. I knew none of those things. It was presented, as I recall, as if like, suddenly this country's done this terrible thing to us, and why we didn't do anything to deserve this. Like There was a huge disconnection from history, as I recall, in the way that that story was told here. I think that's
2: absolutely true, and this is what I meant about, isn't that the riddle of history, is where do you start the story? The story is very much impacted by where you start the story. And I think in America, we only have really cared about the history of Iran from 1979 or 1980. And there's been almost this, would I say, willful, maybe in some cases, but certainly an ability to really presume that there was no history beyond that point of 1980, that we were innocent until that moment.
1: Such an American problem.
2: Um, (laughs) If we can...
0: (laughs) Our podcast is trying to cure this problem.
2: But, you know, know, this goes a little bit maybe further than, you know, we're able to contain in this interview. But it has implications also for literature because I think many of the books that have been published about Iran by Iranians here in America have either gotten to the market or have enjoyed a larger readership because they have – focused on 1979 and beyond, and that history, that preceding history, or any other story about Iran has been shunted off to the side because that's not a story that we want to necessarily hear.
1: That's interesting. There's a a recent novel that came out by um, a young writer of Palestinian origin, um, The Parisian, and it's sort of notable because it takes place so much earlier than any other novels. And it was striking that it was like, you know, there's now this this moment when people are beginning to be able to acknowledge like a longer arc of time. It is sort of astonishing the way that people are so... Um, readers can be quite ahistorical. Thinking can be quite ahistorical, which is another way of being, of course, highly individualistic. I'd love to go back and talk about your first book, The Good Daughter, in which you sort of alluded to this earlier. You talk about how your mother and father brought you to America and how later as a young adult you uncover some troubling family history. Can you talk a little bit about why they left Iran and and what or who they had to leave behind?
2: Of course. So my parents and I left Iran in 1978. It wasn't yet being talked about as a revolution. It was just sort of when people talked about it, they said there was a lot of trouble. There was a lot of sort of chaos happening. And they were really uneasy about where the country was going. They didn't think they would have to leave for long I think there was a feeling like, we've been here before, things have settled down. So they left from America, they thought they'd wait out this trouble and go back eventually. By 1980 or 1981, it's very clear to them that that is not going to happen. So they wind up buying a motel, they bought this rundown motel in Northern California on the side of the highway, and they did their best to make a new life. Anyway, I thought it was really the revolution that had caused my family's immigration. And then in my 20s I found out that there was another reason that at least my mother never wanted to go back. She had been married to someone else before she married my father. She was 13 years old when she was married the first time. Divorism. It was really yeah, it was a really abusive relationship. When she divorced, which was very unusual at that time, this is the 1950s in Iran, she was forced to give up her child. When her father arranged that divorce, she had no right. To seek a divorce herself so her father got her that divorce and it was on the condition that she never tell anyone that she had been married and that she had a child so that's what she did even with her friends her very very close friends didn't know that she had had this whole life before she'd married my father and had me so in part i think coming to america was an opportunity to leave this very painful part of her life behind, um, to leave at least part of, part of who she had been behind and to start over. But of course it didn't turn out like that at all because it followed her and it really sank its roots into her once we came here.
0: In that book you have, uh, here's a line that gets to the title of the, of the book in which you write, we were a world of two, my mother and I, until I started turning into an American girl. That's when she began telling me about the good daughter became a taunt, a warning, an omen. Did your mom have reservations about you acting American or Western rather than Iranian? And what what was the quality of those fears?
2: It's so complicated. I would say before we came to America, my mother would have called herself a very modern woman. Um, but in coming to America, she became in some ways much more traditional than mm. she had been in Iran. So interesting to me, and I don't think it's, it's only happened to Iranians, but sometimes it, immigration can make families more traditional. And that's what happened in my family. Immigration really revived and fortified that Iranian part of my mother. And I think what was happening in part was that she was looking around at the way young women were acting and also how they were being treated. And it didn't seem all that empowering to her. It didn't Mm -hmm. seem all that enlightened to her. Of course, to me, as a young woman growing up in America, she seemed just hopelessly backward. And I could not wait to get out from under her regime, so to speak. I also think though, over the years I've, I've come to think also that this sort of American girl Iranian dichotomy was tied up also with the fear of losing me. So you have to understand when we left Iran, my mother lost a large and very close family. Her cousins, her aunts, her mother, all of them stayed in Iran. I was the only one left. I was Iran. And so I think in some ways, the fear of my becoming American was really about this fear that I'd leave and she'd be alone.
1: Gosh, that's such a sad story. And I mean, some of this is tied up with, as you as you mentioned, what feminism looks like in that era. What does feminism look like in today's Iran?
2: This is complicated because I have not been to Iran since I was a child. It would surprise many people, at least when I talk to, let's say, book club groups, they're really surprised how far feminism has gone in Iran, how much it has transformed the lives of Iranian women. Now, again, they're watching a very limited range of films and they're probably reading, maybe they've read one or two other books besides mine, so they don't have a very broad frame of reference, though they mm-hmm. often want to have one. Anyway, women in Iran make up more than half the university students. They're active in all professions. They're in politics. They face sexism and misogyny and state-sanctioned repression, but they're not, as we're given to believe, silent and sequestered victims of their fate either.
0: So has is that something that's sort of changed over the course of the 40 years since the Revolution, because I'm assuming, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that the Shah was allowing fairly westernized culture, but maybe only for wealthy people. And then the revolution, I'm assuming, caused a lot of changes in the ways that women were treated and were allowed to dress and what they were allowed to do in Iran right after it happened.
2: Absolutely. And the revolution brought to bear something that I think is still a very alien concept to a lot of people, which is Islamic feminism, there were many hundreds of thousands, millions of women who did not feel that they were empowered under the Shah's version of modernity. Oh, okay. They, my grandmother's generation, the veil had been outlawed in Iran in the 1930s. The response in my mother's family was to keep all their daughters at home. That was the response. And I think there were a great number of people who, as Iran was rapidly modernizing, they did not want to participate in that. There were many women who didn't want to participate in that. And so when the Islamic regime comes into being, there are some women in the country who feel emboldened and empowered by that and who enter the professions and who become politically active in ways that would have been totally alien under the supposedly more modern era of the
0: Shah. Did that work out, or was it there a dark side to it and didn't turn out to be as good as they had hoped?
2: It's mixed, because if you look now, I think the last time I looked at these numbers, I think there are more women in politics in Iran, more more elected Iranian women politicians in Iran than there are in America. This might have changed, but those aren't necessarily women of a great variety of ideological orientations, right? Um, They tend to be women with more traditional outlooks who are in the positions they are because they are in line with the regime ideologically. Nonetheless, they are there. So
1: your book, Song of a Captive Bird, is based on the life of Faruk Farakzad. For our listeners who might not be familiar with her remarkable life, could you talk about who she was and how she ended up being, and this seems to come naturally out of this discussion of feminism, how she ended up being the primary material for your novel?
2: Sure. So Faruk is, and she was ever since the 50s, an icon in Iran. She was a, I think the word I, that comes to mind was readily is she was a real badass. She was a very <laughs> rebellious. I mean, it just is the word that pops into my mind when I think about her. She lived on her own terms. She wrote on her own terms. There had been some women who wrote in Iran before her, but nobody wrote with the kind of honesty and daring that she did. And when we left Iran, her book of one of her book of poems was one of the two or three books my mom brought with her to America, she was that beloved to not just my mother, but a whole generation of Iranian women. I had this Mm -hmm. sense growing up of her importance and her status, but it wasn't until I was in college that I started reading her poetry and I was totally blown away. I didn't think about writing about her for years, but I think the way books work, at least for me, is that the sort of pressure builds in you and the only way to release it is by writing about whatever (laughs) it is. (laughs) <laughs> sort of That's obsessing. a good metaphor. I
0: like that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And and so after many years... Or sometimes it
0: forces you to learn more about something that you wanted to learn oh, more yeah. about anyway.
2: Which I think is why it's so important to trust those kinds of obsessions. Um, I think they can yield so much for you as a writer. And part of the magic of writing about food was that there were things that I knew... About her, she had a very dramatic and interesting life. But because she was such a myth, there was lots that was unknown about her, or that was contentious, or um, that I could only ever get at by imagining my way into it. So it was a sort of perfect combination of certain known elements and others that could only be discovered.
0: So her poetry was banned for over ten years after the revolution. So right, how does that fit in with our discussion of sort of? the surprising mixture of sometimes feminist progress that happened after the revolution.
2: Right. So a vast range of literature was censored. In the wake of the revolution, uh, with Furukh, the pretext was censoring the sexual content of her poetry. Furukh's poems are not explicit. They're often sensual. Love poems, if you know anything about Iranian poetry, it's that love poems are a very dominant form in the literature. And it wasn't problematic or, you know, it wasn't Rumi or Hafez that was banned um, by the regime. But someone like Fudu, a woman writing in the 1950s, 1960s in Iran, was a real lightning rod for the regime, not just because of her poetry, but for because of what she stood for. She wrote about relationships. She wrote also about environmentalism. She wrote about nuclear armament. She wrote about social justice, economic inequality, a really vast and diverse range of issues. And I think the greater threat with Fudor and also her appeal to people was, here's this intensely intelligent woman, and she said, and she thought, and she lived on her own terms. That was a forbidding spectacle for the Iranian regime.
0: So sort of more like you could make it as a woman under the Islamic revolution if you agreed with what they said. But if you didn't, then it was going to be hard.
2: I mean, in Furul's case, it's quite literally an erasure of this, at least one of the things that's erased out of a woman's humanity is her body. So when her poems were censored, and later they were censored um, not in whole but in part— it was references to the body. So quite, you know, they'd go through her poems and any mention of a woman's body part would just be excised from the poet poem. And I think that is such a, such a powerful and heartbreaking statement on the regime's ability to recognize the full humanity of women. We'd
1: love to hear you read from the novel.
2: Mm -hmm. Sure. All right. So I'm going to read from an early part of the book, first part of the second chapter. My name is Furuq, which in Persian means eternal light. I was born in Iran, a country that stretches across a 3,000-mile-high stone plateau and is bordered in every direction by tall mountains. To the north, forests of pine, birch, and aspen rim the Caspian Sea. To the south lie turquoise-domed mosques, villages sculpted from honey-colored rock, and the ravaged gardens and palaces of Susa and Persepolis. Vast deserts of salt and sand extend from east to west. On any day of the year, all four seasons take place within Iran's borders. Here, under a continually shifting surface of wildflowers, sand, rock, and snow, black veins of oil plunge to the heart of the earth. By 1935, the year I was born, Tehran had long since been rid of the mud walls and shallow moat that once encircled it. But it was still an old-fashioned city of dirt roads, narrow passageways, and flat-roofed family compounds. It had nothing of the beauty of Esfahan or Shiraz with their shimmering mosques and sumptuous palaces. But tall mountains encircled the city, and even in summer, the air carried the scent of snow. It seems to me impossible now that my old neighborhood in Tehran, with its many houses, alleyways, and passages, has disappeared. But I know if I returned after all this time, after the war and revolution, I wouldn't be able to find it. Still, I only need to close my eyes to return to my father's house in Amirieh. For years that house was my only country, and the square above my mother's garden was all I knew of heaven's blue sky. The rooms of my family's house were divided in the traditional manner, which is to say split into an andarun, or women's quarters, and a biruni, men's quarters. A long, narrow corridor connected the two parts of the house, and high brick walls barricaded the compound on all sides. It was a house that turned from the world and cast its gaze inward. A house whose women believed the very walls listened for sin. A house where we whispered the truth or didn't speak it at all. My father, when I was a child, I never dared call him father. He forbade it. To us children and also to our mother, he was only the Colonel or Orbon, you to whom I sacrificed myself. And to everyone else, he was Colonel Farouk Zad. I don't think I even knew his first name until many years later. I didn't have the courage to ask it. And even after I fled his house, I still had no other name to call him but Colonel. He was broad-shouldered and square-jawed with piercing black eyes. No matter the day or the occasion, he always set out from the house dressed in military costume. A high-collared jacket with brass buttons, rows of gleaming medals, heavy black boots, and the tall, rimless hat of the king's army. Though he spent whole weeks away on military tours, leaving us in our mother's care, the house in Amiria would always be his principal garrison, and we children his foot soldiers. The sound of his voice in the alleyway or the thwack of his black boots against the tiles in the foyer sent the seven of us children scurrying. For years, our sleep was freighted with fear of him. We could never be sure if he'd spend the night at home, but we always went to bed already wearing our next day's clothes, our shoes set carefully on the floor next to our mattresses, our bodies tense and expectant. When he did spend the night in Amirghia, he woke us the next morning, one by one, girls and boys, youngest and oldest, with a single hard kick of his boot against our ribs. We jerked up, hastily combed our hair and slipped on our shoes, fumbling and tripping and rubbing sleep from our eyes. We filed out of our rooms, proceeded down the corridor and descended the curved staircase." The servants were still asleep in their own quarters, and our mother hadn't yet risen from her morning prayers. The house at that hour was therefore completely quiet and still.
0: Thank you very much. That was wonderful. Um, Thank you. I wondered if you could talk to us. You mentioned um, earlier in our conversation that, you know, very few books about Iran occur before the 1979 revolution, obviously this one does, uh, what were some of your literary influences, uh, as you were coming up, as you were emerging as a writer?
2: As a writer, gosh, again, when to trace back this history, um, I'd read voraciously, I went to grad school wanting to study Victorian literature. I would say though, probably the transforming books for me, the books that really made me want to write, become a writer were books like Maxine Hong Kingston's The Woman Warrior, also Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye was very important to me. And later I discover an uh, English novelist named Sarah Waters, who mm-hmm. writes fiction about women, lesbian women in the Victorian era. She's got this really funny, you know, kind of canny sense of humor in how she renders that history. And I also very much loved Isabella Allende, who writes a lot about women also, um, and has, I think, a really kind of extraordinary voice as well. So if I could say the perfect book for me or the kind of the books that really make me want to write and that excite me a lot as a writer are books that marry complicated women living in perhaps unfamiliar places and times and they tell those stories with a really beautiful prose style maybe you'd even think poetic prose style
1: it's interesting that so many of the books that you mentioned strike me as examples of books that combine history and almost a kind of myth or community oriented storytelling with of course like strong individual characters but um, right, of course, the woman warrior is sort of famous for its. Um, right, I think she what originally wanted to wanted it to just be marketed as a novel, and it ended up being marketed as a memoir. And the ways in which it, all those books, combine those voices, which is also something that I, you know, I feel like is very much in your book, and even what you said about it, like that notion of here are these known the known facts, and then the spaces you can enter imaginatively. Were there spaces that were particularly Difficult or fun to
2: enter imaginatively with her? yeah, I think those were the most fun spaces to enter. Um, I think often you start with a frustration out of a sense of what's not there, but then you quickly realize those are the parts where you can own the story, right? or you can sort of inhabit it most fully. so there there's a early the earliest chapter in the first chapter of the book is a story that imagines. Um Furu going for a virginity test. Now, I don't know if this happened to Foul. I do know because my mother was a midwife and um, performed hundreds of these tests that it was a very common practice. So when I encountered in history books about or story biographies about Foul that she had been married, sort of hastily, she'd gotten married pretty quickly and no one could quite account for why it happened as quickly as it did, I began to think, what might have occasioned that? So you take this really rebellious girl living in this really very traditional society, that must have been a combustible moment. And so the first chapter of the book imagines that combustion, imagines um, the circumstances that might have given rise to Fudel's hasty marriage. And... Those, those are the part. like I say, I think that was the most enjoyable, in a sense, to, to, to write. It's nothing that history could ever give you. By the same token, anything I invented like that had to feel consonant with the truth. So if you're someone, and I am that sort of person, that kind of writer who enjoys a certain amount of constraint, these, these kinds of making and, and sort of solving of puzzles is extremely pleasurable.
0: Well, thanks so much for coming by the show, Jasmine, and solving a few puzzles for us.
2: (laughs) Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed speaking with both of you.
0: Yeah, it's been great to talk. All right. Thank you. Take care. (laughs) Thanks, Suki. And we'll encourage our listeners to go read more about Jasmine at her website, jasmine-darsnick.com. And we'll also link to that in our show notes.
1: We're joined now by Dina Nayeri. Dina's debut novel, A Teaspoon of Earth and Sea was translated into 14 languages. Her second novel, Refuge, was a New York Times editor's choice. Her stories and essays have been published by The New York Times, The New York Times Magazine, The Guardian, The Los Angeles Times, The New Yorker, Grant and New Voices, The Wall Street Journal, and many others. Dina holds an MFA from the Iowa Writers' Workshop, where she was a Truman Capote fellow and teaching writing fellow. Her most recent book, The Ungrateful Refugee, is based on her 2017 Guardian essay of the same name. She lives in London. Dina, welcome to the
0: show.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Thanks for being here. Uh, This episode focuses on the 40th anniversary of the Islamic revolution in Iran. So, You were born in Tehran and then you were moved very soon after that to Isfahan uh, in 1979. The revolution happened between January of 1978 and February of 1979. I'm assuming you don't personally have any memories of it, but but does your family and, and do Iranians demarcate time before and after the revolution, sort of in the way Americans think about time before and after, say. Nixon or the Vietnam War?
4: Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a moment where the country changed in a way that was tangible and visceral for every family. My fam- my family have lots of stories, and you know, mostly when we were in Iran, told behind you know closed curtains and in whispers, and then afterward, you know, at length. So my mother actually was very involved. My parents were um, both students, and you know, the revolution was a revolution that was started by students, and they were. I think they'd recently gotten out of me- medical school, and they had started practices and they had many you know kind of uh, academic and scholarly friends and and, you know their entire cohort was somehow involved you know they wanted the shah out and they took to the streets but of course then the revolution you know is kind of hijacked and it became something very different from what the people had wanted but um the transformation was a Huge moment for my mom and my dad, too, but my mom especially. Um, and, um, you know, and of course, it was the moment I was born. So, suddenly, life before had been one thing, and life after was something <laughs> completely different. So, like, life before had been, you know, just modern and Western and full of like books and studying and parties, very similar to what was going on in the West at that time. Afterwards, suddenly, you know, the women were under a veil. Uh, you could only read certain things. Um, and and my mom was also a new mother.
0: When you say these stories were told in whispers and then later at length, who were you were trying to avoid having being heard by? A- my
4: lifetime it was, you know, the Islamic Republic because it was, you know, an authoritarian regime and and you know, people felt like, you know, they were being spied on and and neighbors were encouraged to inform on each other and and friends and even families. And then also, you know, it, it suddenly, you know, the war happened. So it was just a dangerous time. It felt dangerous, you know, and and I, I think people were just much more comfortable keeping their mouth shut and seeing what happened, right? They, they were just like, let's wait and see. And then they had seen everything that happened to people that went against the regime, both before the revolution and after. I mean, people just kept private and they kept their opinions to themselves. Time after any revolution, I think people tend to be afraid and want to see what will happen. And now it's very much decided. And I think that the next generation are pushing back in so many ways. You know, you see people, um, you know, going out into the streets without their scarves, and you know, testing the boundaries. And the women have been testing the boundaries for so so long. But at the very start of the revolution, of course, they they couldn't do that.
1: So, you're. I want to go back to Isfahan. Your family stayed in Isfahan after the revolution. Could you talk a little bit about that and what Isfahan was like and how the revolution impacted your kind of daily existence?
4: Um so for example I I went to um school you know under in to an all-girls school in Isfahan. I wore hijab in order to go to school. I wore a kind of very austere gray academic hijab that literally covered everything but the circle of the face. Yeah. Um, you know once actually this is this is a scene in my book. A really brutal memory for me when um as kind of a personal punishment this very um you know very vindictive teacher forced me to be the one to do death to america death to israel in front of the school um it like the bullhorn in front of everyone hmm. um yeah so but but then you know life was divided into two parts because there was the city part of our life in which you know there was you know, you couldn't show your hair in the street. You had to be fully covered. You, we tried to get from place to place rather quickly. We had our private life indoors. My mother and father just basically got on with their work and tried to stay out of the way of the government. And then there was the village life where we went every weekend. And my father would just whisk us away to this village called on the, uh, You know, it was in about an hour away from Isfahan. And it was like going back a couple of hundred years. And people living the way they did hundreds of years ago. And they avoided the radio. They didn't listen to the news. They just lived, you know, basically off the land and with, you know, with their family and community and whatever traditional, you know, parts of Islam they brought into their lives were.
0: So the effects of the revolution were much more concentrated in urban areas. Well,
4: I mean— it felt that way. And I think maybe the reason is because any kind of uprising against the, the Islamic Republic would certainly come from the cities. It would come from the intellectual class. It would come from the students just as it had been for the the revolution in 79. So they were, I mean, of course, in, in any kind of authoritarian state, you'd be afraid of what goes on in the cities and the universities, the, in the villages. I mean, what's going to happen there? They often, you know, they, they, I think they were mostly
0: left alone. So, that uh, we talked some about with our previous guest about the origins of the revolution and the Shah but i just wanted to you know i am really curious about this idea of like how it is that you as you mentioned in your in your earlier answer like these were the people who started the revolution were like professionals in some sense young people how did it become a totalitarian state so quickly. I can understand not wanting the Shah, but that doesn't seem like a, a a goal that young people generally have.
4: This is how revolutions work. I mean, you uh, you know, you promise a, a number of things in order to topple you know the previous government and 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 um, take power you highlight all of the wrongs that they did but you know obviously uh, you know it's really hard to set up a democracy and and there, uh, there's no telling that they even ever planned to have one um you just uh, they put in another kind of authoritarian state so um and i people didn't know that's what would happen they really truly believed that what they would get is a government devoted to you know their well-being against the excesses of the shah i mean the shah's the shah's regime was in many ways, good for Iran, because there was this cultural revolution, there was westernization, there was, you know, kind of Iran sort of coming into her own. The wealth wasn't equally divided, and there was a lot of corruption, and there was a lot of silencing of people. Hmm. Um, and, 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 and the average person felt that much more. I mean, they couldn't say what they felt um, about the inequalities. They suffered from a lot of economic, you know, um, problems. They didn't benefit from all the cultural revolution stuff, because that was for the rich and the educated. Right. And they just wanted to read their Qurans and be in their village and sell their vegetables and be happy. Right. So uh, meanwhile, there was this fearful police state I think, called the Savak and, and the Shah was, you know, putting down his enemies. So obviously, if you're just, just the average Iranian, what part of it are you going to show? No, That's not what they think. They think, you know what, these people are taking advantage. They're not giving back to us and let's put in someone else. Um, and their, their image, the way that it was just all around the Ayatollah Khomeini, like someone who is about religion and about modesty, of course, that was just an image. He was corrupt too, you know. By the time people realized what it was, it was too late. And I think there was a sense of um, nostalgia for pre-revolution, a sense of loss, a shame. Oh, my gosh, my parents' generation, the shame of having helped make that happen. And my, I have this um, this uh, kind of second cousin who is a scholar and an activist, very kind of um, uh, she was very left-wing, very progressive, and she was a communist at the time and a student. And the fact that she had anything to do with making that revolution happen, I think it stings. It hurts, you know? Like, this is not what they wanted. This was a people's revolution. They wanted something good for the people, and that's not what they got.
1: One aspect of Iranian history that rarely gets discussed in the U.S. is the Iran-Iraq War, which ran from about 1980 to 1988. And casualty estimates for that war run from over a million people to twice that. And it started right after the revolution. Can you talk about how it was connected to the revolution and what it was like to live through that?
4: think about the first eight years of my life I think about war you know I think about you know going to school and not knowing if it'll end on time or if there'll be a big siren and we're going to have to run home or you know if it's too close and we have to run into a basement right at the school you know or um, you know the ration coupons and not knowing you know what you could get having to to watch parents you know make all kinds of shady deals for things like food etc nothing felt very concrete or stable or ordered you know I remember kind of thinking oh you can't trust anyone (laughs) you know there is um there is a limited limited resources in the world and everything could just kind of blow up tomorrow and so um it feels very much like um people are just surviving from day to day um
0: it was such a terrible war i mean so many people died in that war i'm sure you knew people who lost sons um, oh,
4: absolutely! We everyone did. I mean, they would send children out into the, you know, to test the mines with these horrible little fake plastic keys around their neck, saying, "This is the key to heaven."
0: Oh my or, God, guys!
4: Yeah, and 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 they, I think they were like testing landmines and things like that. It was horrible. But you know, again, like every war, it's the children of the the poor who get sent out first. Um, but you know, we did every day hear about, you know, a street that was bombed in Tehran or some family who'd lost their home or, or, you know, somebody who'd lost an arm and a leg or a leg. A siren could make you just like jump, grab the closest, you know, kid and run. I remember there was this kind of um, feeling that, um you know, if you are an adult, it doesn't matter who's around that's smaller than you. You grab them and go. Um, and so sometimes you're just like with some random ant and you're in a basement. Um, There's this thing called War of the Cities. Um, and uh, the Iraq was, you know, kind of heavily engaged in bombing major Iranian cities. Okay. And, um, you know, I, I just have to tell you one little anecdote, because years later when I was at Iowa, um I, this was in 2000, I was in Iowa in 2011 to 2013. And I went looking for Iranians to be friends with. And I found this group of Iranians who had kind of newly arrived to Iowa, and they were mostly in the engineering schools, etc. And I befriended them, and it was so, so interesting to talk about our country and parts of it that I had missed since I had left. And one guy started joking, oh, and while we were sitting for a coffee, there was one of those alerts, you know, oh, there was a a suspicious person walking down such and such street, or, you know, somebody – Uh, broke into a house. And these Iranians would just laugh and be like, what are they doing? Don't they know that like when you send an alarm to a phone like that, every Iranian will grab like every kid he sees in his path and run to a basement.
1: So in the so just to go back to part of that question, can you explain for our listeners who might not know, which I think actually might be a a chunk of our listeners who might have might be um, too young to remember you know, kind of the duration of that war, how it was connected to the revolution.
4: But the revolution, I think, was scary for Saddam Hussein because he's got this huge majority Shiite population, right? And he's a Sunni and I think he had a secular regime, right? So, Mm -hmm. So like the fear of an uprising from the Shiite majority in Iraq was, you know, very, very real for him. And and of course, the, Sh- the, the the Iran is a Shiite country. So, you know, they had already had an uprising and taken over this country next door. So he was afraid that it would, you know, inspire people in Iraq. He wanted to take some oil rich part of Iran for himself. Um, so he he's the one who, you know, attacked. And of course, this was the first, I, I, I think it was The first great challenge of the Islamic Republic to win this war against this hostile enemy next door. Um, So all the parents would listen, you know, the savvy ones, the scholarly ones. They'd listen to what we were told by the government about what had happened in certain battles. And then we would go and find a way to get onto the BBC and, and listen to what had actually happened. And it was often very different stories. But of course, in the villages and in the uneducated parts of Iran, people would just take the word of their own government. So in the end,
1: your mother left Iran with you and your brother in 87, and your father chose to stay behind in Iran where he still lives today. Can you talk a little bit about the circumstances that led to that decision to separate your family, and and how common that was among Iranians at that time?
4: So my mother, you know, as I said before, she was someone that was definitely looking for a purpose for something, you know, to follow and to lend her talents to. And she was fiery and young, and during this revolution, she was very, very adamant, um, you know, and religious. Um, but I guess Islam was not satisfying to her, and as a woman, she felt pushed, you know, into the background, and 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 there was at some point when I was six years old, she went to visit her own mother in England and converted to Christianity. But if you were a converted Christian or if you were converted from Islam in any way, that's apostasy, right? So you're then in trouble and they can kill you. But my mother came back and she was loud about her Christianity. So she was like telling all her patients about it. She was an OBGYN. So she had a lot of um, women patients who were, um, you know, abused and unhappy. And she told them she gave them tracts and told them about Jesus. And she had this big giant cross hanging in her windshield in her car, which is just basically like an invitation to please come and arrest me. (laughs) <laughs> um, and then she started getting involved with, you know, underground radio stations, broadcasting to the villages. She was really on a mission, you know, and, and she got herself into trouble fast. She got arrested. They asked her to be a spy against the underground church in Iran, in which we in, in which we were, by the way, heavily involved. I mean, I remember one of my formative memories is just like three days a week in that, you know, in that pastor's house where everybody would gather in secret with all the curtains drawn. How old were you when this happened? Eight years old. So it happened between the time I was six and the time I was eight. And when I was about to turn nine, um, things got really, really bad. My mom was arrested for a third time and was told that she would be killed the next day. And then through a series of, um, you know, kind of crazy things that happened, my dad, you know, he kind of, I guess, pulled a few of those kinds of strings and got us out of there just in time.
3: Well,
0: you eventually ended up in Oklahoma with your mom and yeah. your brother, um, mm-hmm. and you write about this in, the, in your new book, The uh, Ungrateful Refugee. I wonder if you could read a little bit from the book and sort of set the book up for us.
4: Sure, yeah. So, you know, um, we escaped from Iran, and we we went I kind of from Isfahan to Tehran, and and then after kind of getting some logistics sorted, ended up in Dubai, where we blew through a travel visa and became undocumented. And we were undocumented for, you know, nearly a year in Dubai and then were became refugees and sent to a refugee camp in Italy, after which we were granted asylum in America. So uh, when we, um, when we were granted asylum, we were told that we had to go and live in Oklahoma, which we had never heard about before. Yeah. So when I was, um, you know, a couple of years ago, when I started to really think about my own refugee experience and my own life and try to kind of um, make sense of that, I started to visit refugee camps in Greece with a charity called Refugee Support, started by a man, um, by two men, one of whom was called Paul Hutchings. And Paul had allowed me to come and, um, you know, to volunteer with this charity, but really kind of spend a lot of time with the Iranians on the camp and to speak to them in Farsi. So Refugee Support is basically a charity that Um, you know, was started by these two men who went to volunteer at Calais, at the Calais jungle, and saw that all of these former, you know, doctors and carpenters and people with dignity were having their, you know, food and clothing kind of thrown out to them from backs of trucks. And so they basically set up grocery stores in in refugee camps across Greece, and they take all the donated food and all of the donated clothing, and they put them in these beautiful spaces, and they give every refugee points which they can come and spend at the store just as they would at their corner store in, um, you know, in their home. And in that way, at least they do some part of this receiving of charity with some dignity. Dignity and shame are, are themes that I'm very familiar with and interested in. In Oklahoma, after I fancied myself an American enough teenager, I began volunteering at a local food bank. Poor mothers or single men would arrive in the front. They would sign in at the desk tell their stories to more experienced volunteers. And we, the teenagers in the back, would receive instruction about which category of grocery bundle to make. Everyone got the same things, with a few extras for babies. They never saw our faces, the silly adolescents who flirted and sang while we chose their food. Tuna or chicken, white or wheat, pulp or no pulp. I gave away all the chunky peanut butter first, thinking I was being kind. I was grateful that I didn't see their faces, that I could avoid the downcast eyes as I loaded their bags into open trunks. My choices inside those paper bags seemed a small tragedy. Accepting charity is an ugly business for the spirit. It rubs you raw, especially if you were once someone with pride and lofty goals, someone who shook hands and locked eyes. My mother and I used to talk about the irony of so many of the world's refugees coming from the Middle East. We are such prideful people and a refugee is the most abject creature of all, stateless, homeless, without control over her own food, education, or health. Asylum seekers is so mild a phrase. We weren't politely seeking, we were ravenous for it, this creature need for the safety of our bodies. Even as we learned English and swam and erased workbooks, we thought of nothing else. How do we survive the memory of so much wanting? In my 30s in New York, I volunteered to help a friend, a well-meaning finance type, and his singles group served Thanksgiving dinner at a homeless shelter. I showed up in a stained t-shirt and old jeans, my hair in a ratty bun. I stuck $10 in my pocket and left my wallet behind. There was no question of what to wear. I knew that tonight I would offer food to a stranger, and that stranger would, for a moment, be humiliated. She would look at my clothes, my posture, for a reason to say, who cares what she thinks? And it was part of my job to give her that reason quickly. But Manhattan do-gooders don't know the quiet bargains that the poor make in the space of a glance. When I arrived at the shelter, my friend looked me up and down. Are you depressed, he joked, eyeing my stains. Behind him, bankers and lawyers in Chanel shoes and white silk shirts, leather purses still on their arms, dished out mashed potatoes and uneasy smiles to tired men and women wearing the grime of the city. Later on, when the residents invited the volunteers to join their table, a plea for dignity, the volunteers declined out of concern. Will there be enough? They dashed off to Momofuku instead, ordered pork belly and cocktails and congratulated themselves for leaving. It would have been overstepping. They complained about the tourists crowding the door. I confess that I ate a few bites of that turkey dinner that may not have been enough, and I ate the pork belly too, and I let my friend pay. I hated him that night, but I was also grateful to be in his company. I went home and threw it all up. Now, more years have passed. In 2017, I'm starting another new life, trying to make sense of the places that made me. Am I still a refugee after decades spent transforming? I know now that Barba was a low-hardship camp. Both parts of that term seem dishonest. Yes, it was something other than hell. It wasn't Moria and Lesbos with its raw sewage and midnight wars, its five-hour food lines and shared tents on open soil. And yes, it was officially a refugee camp. But it wasn't low-hardship and it wasn't a camp. It wasn't a hotel either. I call it a hostel. The difference between each pair of words is, is subtle, a private calculation of shame and place and dignity. You know what I love, says Paul, when they complain about the selection? Because that means that they've forgotten they're in a camp. They're briefly transported and they're just people in a store with money in hand complaining about yogurt. I want to go, I say. We have rules, he says. We need to keep absolute equality between people. No hint of special treatment. We don't allow socializing. Volunteers can't even accept a cup of tea or enter the private rooms. This is to avoid requests for favoritism. It's also to create a microeconomy as familiar to the one in the outside world as possible. In the outside world, your store clerk doesn't look at you with eyes that say, don't you appreciate what I'm doing? He expects you to come in, pay, and go. He expects you to complain about the lack of whole milk or the stal- staleness of the bread. In the outside world, there is an equality between service provider and customer that doesn't exist when people are doling out charity. Are there Iranians there, I ask? Or Afghans that speak Farsi? There will be at Katzakas when it opens, he says. Probably not at LM. He explains that refugee support will have left LM altogether by then. Still, I know I'll go there, that I will convince Paul to go with me. This feels like a truer return than my visit to Barba's Bones. I want to go without that rule, I say, remembering that long ago turkey dinner that everyone turned down. If this is about pride, and especially with Iranians, I have to be able to accept a cup of tea.
1: Well, thank you so much for that reading. I think I'm particularly interested in that passage especially after having read refuge and reading the ungrateful refugee and, and thinking about I mean it's such a striking and totally excellent title and thinking about that sort of the transaction of charity as as you talk about like that shame the shame the humiliation the dignity and and then that comparison to you know what is it that a store clerk expects from you yeah um, it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a great passage. Um, well, it's and- not only
0: that. I mean, I feel like to, you know, that again, that, that the section of the book that came out in the Guardian came out in 2017, but today with, um, what president Trump's been saying about Ilhan Omar, uh, yeah. saying she should be grateful, right? <laughs> that, that, that idea of critiquing gratefulness is sort of part of what you're doing in the book as well. I wonder if you could talk about that some.
4: Sure. Well, I mean, I think um, I'm just distinguishing what, you know, gratitude is and what it should be from what it should not be. So I'm not critiquing it, I suppose, as a private emotion. The idea that
0: immigrants are supposed to be grateful, right? That's the idea that you're critiquing. Yeah
4: so what i'm clarifying for people who just throw around this this comment um or this phrase is that actually you know um every refugee and every immigrant that you know enters this new life is actually full of private gratitude and they will live the rest of their life you know full of it but the thing is that it's not something to be postured for the benefit of the native born it is something to that that kind of it, is held inside someone's heart and it, it changes the way they interact with the world around them and the people closest to them and and you know and that's how it's supposed to be you can't force someone to be grateful to you specifically just as you can't force someone to love you or appreciate you this um widespread expectations for for refugees to posture and to behave a certain way and to um to act as if they're a certain class and category in comparison with the native born and i think that that's wrong and that forget gets, you know, the, the accident of birth and the fact that no native born American or English or French person or Dutch deserves their place in those safe countries. They were just happened to be born there. So when somebody is rescued by the governments of those countries and brought to live there, why should they have to feel grateful to the people who were already lucky enough to have, you know, been born to families in those countries? That makes absolutely no moral or ethical sense.
1: If we're going to spend so much of our public discourse on the notion that it's a meritocracy. I mean, I think embedded in your critique of a kind of performative gratitude is also just like a a critique that I really agree with about, like, what is the point of the nation state and what are borders anyway? So, I mean, on sort of the back of that, yeah, kind of, so on the back of that notion, I just want to ask, you know, if your family had attempted to emigrate to the U.S. today, the Muslim ban would prevent and would have prevented you from doing so. So I'm just curious for your your thoughts as you as you read the as you read the headlines your view of that ban the supreme court did the astonishingly bad yeah. supreme court decision exactly. upholding that executive order
4: yeah no i mean i was so disappointed and so sad because it goes against everything that i believe america to be and that not just i believe it goes against what america is i mean remember that i came to america at a time when when you know people um you know, why, while individually they may not have, you know, rolled out the red carpet for immigrants, they believed that America had a duty, you know, um, to the rest of the world and that all this prosperity and all of this, you know, success and wealth meant that we had to give back, you know? And also just the very notion of it as a Christian nation um, told people that they had to behave that way. Now the entire idea of, you know, of, of refuge, of, of the, the Statue of Liberty, of Christianity itself has been being called into question by people who just want to protect themselves from imagined uh, you know dangers and and they're just crouched against themselves and their family and, and thinking you know only of self protection it's quite an ugly thing but, you know that 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 supreme court decision was disappointing for so many reasons not only because you know trump's ban is so very obviously about muslims and 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 because he has specifically said that it was about that but because you know, um, they essentially said that the motivations of a president doesn't matter at all, right? Well, all that matters is that he has the power to do this. Well, this sounds a little bit scary for someone who comes from a authoritarian yes, regime, okay? Grand. Like, of course, motivations matter. Of course, <laughs> why he says he does it matters. If it goes against what America stands for, it's the Supreme Court's job to say, no, no, no. Actually, you know, um, this isn't uh, part of your rights, you know, to affect immigration policy in this way, but. But that's not what they said, and, 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 I, and that scares me.
0: Well, I think that – and I heard a really interesting – I'm going to credit the, the Vox's The Weeds podcast where I had a really interesting conversation about the historical roots for why we think that refugees or people who are coming here seeking asylum should be grateful. And in part, I, on the right, like why has the right supported refugees and, and asylum seekers in the past? And, and they were arguing that refugees and refugees from Vietnam – you were getting reliably anti-communist voting blocks during the Cold War, right? And so their gratitude was to be expressed in the way that they voted. And oh, yeah. when you see the, the thing that the conservatives are getting upset about with Ilhan Omar, somebody's like, hey, I don't, I, I, I'm a refugee. I came here, but I did not agree. It was not part of the deal that I have to support Republican policies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that I think seems like people- that's what's upsetting them.
4: Yeah, well, I think a lot of the people who, you know, behave in such a way that makes refugees feel as if they're being asked to posture gratitude, a lot of those people have a very kind of small, um, you know, kind of closed off idea of what America is. So they believe America to be their own specific set of values, you know. So, so you know, republicanism and Christianity and all of those things are America to them. So, you know, for example, when, I, when we went to Oklahoma in, you know, the early 90s, late 80s, um, we were... The story was that we were Christians who had escaped the Islamic Republic. Right, and Christianity is from- another
0: thing that exactly. makes it easier for the right to support right. Uh, asylum well, what seekers.
4: That meant is, what that meant is that we had to go around from church to church telling our story. The story right. had to include no beauties from Iran, no no complexity. It was just about how Jesus saved us. My mom was heavily discouraged by our sponsors from expe- accepting any kind of, like, the publics and social services that she was entitled to. They said, you know, we are hardworking Republicans. You're not going to sign up for food stamps or and you're not going to sign up for you know any kind of benefits because then you'd be the kind of immigrant that comes in and immediately signs up for help well you know what refugees need help for a while, you know, Um, but that's not what this story was about. And so immediately my mom was to put to work in a factory. The The idea is, oh, if we save these people for be, be, for a particular, you know, religious or political cause, you know, be Christianity or republicanism, then they will come in and they will take up the mantle with us of that specific cause. And that equals America. Well, that doesn't equal America. America is a lot of you know different religions and it, it America is the freedom to choose
0: right well but- people forget that recently uh, as you know President Trump decided to pull out of this joint comprehensive plan of action better known as the Iran nuclear deal which the Obama administration had negotiated and now tensions are rising in the Straits of Hormuz drones have been shot down Iran and Britain have seized each other's oil tankers Trump's talking about retaliatory airstrikes he's clamping down on oil exports sanctioned uh, the Ayatollah Khamenei's personally uh, among other actions. Does this rhyme with the original tensions that led to the revolution 40 years ago and how are these sanctions and the ongoing saber rattling affecting reformist leaders in Iran?
4: Yeah, I mean, the sanctions are really scary. I mean, the, the the reason that I, you know, I liked the Iran nuclear deal was because it it eased up on the sanctions on the Iranian people. And, you know, sanctions always work the opposite way that they tell you that they're going to work. They hurt the <coughs> average person who then, you know, has less money, has less access to the things that they need. And all of the leaders and, and the rich have ways of getting around the sanctions, right? But then they they spin the narrative that this is the – this. The reason that you are suffering this poverty is because of this enemy, America. It's not going to turn the people against their own government, and it's not going to help the reformists. It's you know, so I mean, that's that's what it does. It helps extremists. Uh, you know, when people are suffering exactly as it was, you know, forty years ago. Remember, if when I said what I said earlier is that all of the ordinary people weren't seeing the benefits of all of this, you know, wonderful cultural movements and things that were happening under the Shah. Um, all they were seeing is that there was such income inequality. And they and they didn't have the things that they need. Well, if if Trump you know presses on the sanctions so much that Iranians feel that way again, well, yes, of course that will feel like. Then I don't know what will happen. I, I don't feel like it's going to be a move toward uh, you know moderation and diplomacy and you know all the things that the the reformist leaders might do. I feel like it will turn the people against America and um, it will pave the way for. What war? Um, I I, I hope not. I'm I'm frankly frightened because I have family there.
1: Are there particular ways that you think about craft that are related when you look back at it to the Islamic revolution?
4: Yeah, you know, there are things that I didn't really um, understand about the way that I thought um, that came from that life that i now understand. for example, i think i draw strong lines between, you know, the private self and the outside self. Um, for me there there are strong layers of life, you know, between um, the the public, the government, you know, layer and, you know, the the school layer, the educational layer and this like deeply familiar, loving, maternal, you know, kind of uh, deepest core of the home, which is completely hidden from all of the other parts of life. And I think I didn't realize that I write that way. It put puts so much of the heart of my fiction in that, in that home core um, until I, I look back you know at a bunch of work and I realize oh well this is how I lived you know I for me real life and truth of who I am was with the grandmothers in the village kind of hidden away um, and everything that I could say and do that was truthfully and most me uh, were things that I could only do there I couldn't dance in public or sing or say what I thought or, or, you know, be a creative person um, out in public in Iran as a girl. And I could, you know, with those grandmothers. And I think that's affected the way that I write. Um, You know, there's there's layers to people and everyone's kind of lying uh, in in my fiction. Um, There's a lot of lies to oneself and to other people. And I think a lot of Iranian writers write that way.
0: Dina, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was fun.
1: Yeah, thanks for joining us. And uh, our listeners can uh, check out Dina's website. And we'll also be linking to some of the other articles that we mentioned, including the
3: Guardian Longreads piece, The Ungrateful Refugee.
1: Thanks for your time. Thank you.
3: That's a wrap for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. I'm Nick Schump. Caleb Olson and I are intern producers for the podcast and MFA students at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com. The fiction, nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub radio tab. Please take a moment to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Here's how to do it. Type the show's name into your Apple Podcast app search bar, select the show, and then scroll down past all the episodes to the bottom, where you will find the rating function. If you don't want to write anything, just punch some stars, five, and you are done. It really helps us out. We'll post a link to the books and articles we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. Happy reading.